Great to see you today. My name is Chad. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. It's always a privilege for us to be able to take a look at God's Word together. And just like Rex said, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 80 today. And we're in a series right now that we've called Songs of the Season. And and it's really just this idea that Christmas has inspired all kinds of incredible Christmas music. How many of you have a favorite Christmas carol or a favorite Christmas song? Anybody just want to shout out what your favorite Christmas carol? A Christmas song might be? Die Hard? No, that's a movie. That's not a song. It's a movie. Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. I heard that one, I think, from over here. I'm sorry, that's, I heard Silent Night. Those are some great Christmas songs. There's something about Christmas that inspires people to poetry, that inspires people to art, that inspires people to sing. And I really do believe that what we see in Scripture is the reason for that. Even Zechariah, his, his is the song that we'll see today. It's just this incredible story of God stepping into our world and making a change that's eternal. Of this gift of redemption that we've received through his son as a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And there's just something about the idea that God would look to you and that he would look to me and would say, I pick you. I I pick you. And and here's how I'm going to prove that. I'm going to make a way for your salvation, and I'm going to do it through the life of my one and only son. I don't know about you, but that gives me reason to sing, and I hope that you have that same reason in you as well. So we're going to take a look at Zachariah's song today. And as we do, I want to start with a couple of questions. I frequently do that. But have you ever just had that moment where you've been left speechless, where something has just happened in your life, and you're just totally, you just, just, you know, my mic's not broken. I just, I just, you're just totally left completely speechless. I remember a time in 2001, uh, Londa and I were in an itinerant ministry. We would travel from church to church. We would lead worship. We would teach. We would do different things like that. But I also, at the same time, owned a video production business. And we were the group that produced all of the video work for Falls Creek. That ministry or that business always worked for other churches and other ministries. And so in 2001, during the summertime, we lived at Falls Creek for about 10 10 weeks out of the year, 12 weeks out of the year. And so Monday through Saturday, we were at the creek helping with video production. And on Sunday, we were at First Baptist Hera leading worship and teaching and doing different things like that. And I'll never forget what happened the Wednesday night before Father's Day uh, in 2001, because if you remember, if you've been to Falls Creek, there's two ways. Once you get uh, once you get off the highway, there's two ways you can get in. You can take the high road or you can take the low road. And Londa says, "Hey, I think we should take the high road." Okay, that's always fun. And at the top of the high road, there's this scenic lookout. And she says, "Why don't you just turn in here to the scenic lookout and let's just spend some time here at the scenic lookout?" And I'm being a young married guy. I'm thinking, "We're gonna make out," um, but uh, that's not what she had in mind. That's yeah. No, that's not at all what she had in mind. Instead, she handed me a card. And I'm like, oh, no, she's handed me a card. Birthday, anniversary, what did I forget? I've forgotten something. And she hands me this card, and I open it up, and it's the first Father's Day card I had ever received. She was telling me that she was pregnant with our first daughter, well, with our only daughter, our firstborn child. And I can remember in that moment being completely and utterly just speechless. And she's like, that's a good thing, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good thing. What an incredible moment that was to be just left speechless. 
Zechariah is a prophet. He's a priest, actually. Technically, he's a priest. And, and he's married to Elizabeth in Scripture. And Elizabeth and Zechariah had this interesting relationship with Mary and Joseph. Elizabeth was, was Mary's cousin, and, and they, they had this relationship together. And, and so one of the things that's interesting about Zechariah and Elizabeth is they were getting up in, in age. They were getting up in years. They were, and, and Zechariah's job was to serve as a priest in the temple, in the tabernacle. That's what he did is he, he served as a priest. So he knew what Scripture had to say. He knew what the Bible said. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the prophecies. He knew the prophets. He knew all of these things. But here's something interesting that, that, that Elizabeth and Zechariah faced. And, and I, I, I know... My experience with this is very small. It's, it's limited. There was a season, because it, we got married seven years before we started having children, and there was a season there where we were curious about as to whether or not we were going to be able to have kids. And then even after Jaden came, between Jaden and our other children, there were some pregnancies that, that, that were miscarried. And, and so we've been through personally just that hurt of, of wondering, God, what... What do you want from us? What do you want for us? I love the process of adoption. My father was adopted, and I wouldn't be who I am today if my grandparents, uh, not my biological grandparents, but my adoptive grandparents, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't carry the name I have. I wouldn't be who I am today if it weren't for my father being adopted. And so for a season in our life, we thought maybe this is the beautiful path God has for us. But even in that beautiful path, there was a bit of that heartache that comes with just knowing that maybe, maybe we won't have one, and then we had one, and maybe we won't have any more. And I can't begin to imagine the, the heartache that someone who is in that condition may feel, even knowing that there's a beautiful path like adoption that can be experienced. I can't begin to imagine what that must be like. And here's Elizabeth and Zechariah, and the Bible is really clear that, that Elizabeth and Zechariah both were getting up in their years, and at this point, Elizabeth had not had any children. And I would imagine that over this course of time that they both had just sort of settled into this idea that we're not going to have kids. We're just not going to have kids. And so here's Zechariah serving before the Lord in the temple just like he's supposed to do. He understands the prophecies. He understands the Old Testament passages, the law and the prophet. He understands all of those things. And then he's visited by the angel Gabriel and there's this incredible announcement made. Messiah's coming, but before he shows up, Elizabeth, your wife, is going to have a baby. And he's going to be the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make, make straight, make the way, prepare the way for the coming of Messiah. And Zechariah, being a good old boy like all of us, went, <laughs> whatever. And, and immediately Gabriel goes, well, because that's your reaction, you will be struck speechless until the baby comes and the baby's named. And the baby's name would be John. And we're familiar with John. We call him John the Baptist. It's actually where we get our name, right? John the Immerser, John the Baptizer. We are, we are Baptist, and, and that's kind of our, our namesake there. So here's this son that's going to be born to Zechariah, and he's completely speechless. He's speechless during the entire pregnancy. Now, those of you who have had pregnant wives before, men, let me just suggest to you, if you're going to talk about how miserable you feel while your wife is pregnant, maybe speechless is the appropriate response for you, 
Okay, maybe just keep the mouth shut. In that moment when she's screaming during labor and you're talking about the splinter that you have in your finger and how bad that hurts, perhaps you should probably just remain speechless. God forced that on Zechariah until the baby came and the baby was named John. And at the point that the baby was named, Zechariah was able to speak again. And this incredible passage of scripture that Rex just read, Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 80, are Zechariah's song. They're the song of his faith as God works this incredible miracle through him. So there's several things we're going to see from this song today. We're going to see out of this song that God is with us, that God is for us, and that God has entrusted a remarkable purpose to each and every one of us. That's exactly what we're going to see today. But before we do that, I want to point out something that I think just I, I just find fascinating. And it's really not the point of this passage. I, want, I like for the points of the passage to come out of the passage. Now that's called exegesis. It means that we let the Bible speak for itself. This passage of Scripture isn't really about what it means to be a parent or to be a grandparent. But there are some observations that before we dive into it that I want to make for those of us who are parents and those of us who are grandparents because I just think it's some remarkable observations that we can make. The first one is this. I remember, actually, Charlie Shackelford right here played bass guitar for us today. I remember the day that Jaden was born. It was a Sunday that Jaden was born, early Sunday morning. It was February the 10th is when she was, she was born. That's my firstborn daughter. I remember that day really, really well. And it was really strange because we had just told a couple of people that, that we had gone to the hospital. We'd stayed at home all day wondering if this was the day we make it to the hospital. And here we are in this hospital, St. Francis, right here in Tulsa. Here we are in the hospital. And... Uh, and Jaden's just about to be born. She's, she's just in that process. And I don't know how this happens, but Charlie Shackelford comes walking into the hospital room. Hey, guys, what's up? How are you doing? I'm like, Charlie, how did you even know we were here? And he's like, oh, uh, Rebecca, she's in labor right now with Matthew, his firstborn son, uh, just in a room, couple down the hall, rooms down the hall. And I'm like, well, shouldn't you be there with her, baby? That's a good idea. But he just kind of shows up. And, and, and so Jaden was born on the 10th. Matthew was born on the 11th. And man, what a great day that was. You remember what, what that was like if you've had kids. Now, here's the thing. I may have felt like singing on that day. I may have felt like writing a song on that day. But as a parent, I can confess to you that I did not want to write a song about Matthew. I mean, I love Matthew. He's a great kid. I love him. I love your family. We're great friends. We've known each other forever. Rebecca and I went to school together, and you guys, you and Londa, played in the symphony together. But on that day, I was not interested in writing a song about Matthew. If I were going to write a song, I would have written it about Jaden, right? But if you'll notice in Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 80, almost two-thirds of the song that Zechariah writes, remember Elizabeth has been barren. They haven't had any kids. This miracle of God happens, and about two-thirds of this song that Zechariah writes isn't about his son at all. It's about the birth of another baby boy that's soon to come. It's about the birth of Jesus Christ. And right there in that moment, before I even move any further in the passage, I'm just struck by the fact that here's this father who never dreamed he would be a father who's realizing I'm going to write a song, but not about my kid alone. The relationship of my child to this Savior, to this Messiah, to this Jesus is far more significant than the birth of my son all by itself. 
So maybe as a parent today, one of the things I hope you realize, and it's not really the point of the passage, but it is an application that we can draw from this. As a parent, as a grandparent, maybe as someone who someday may be a parent, maybe you ought to recognize that there is this reality that as fantastic as our kids may be, as challenging as parenting and grandparenting may be, there is a context for our parenting that is not just momentary. There is a context for our parenting that is eternal. And that eternal context is established not simply because we are eternal creatures and eternal people. It's established because the one who is eternal, Jesus Christ, came. He lived, he died, and he rose again. And he did that for you as a parent, for you as a grandparent, for you as a potential parent, for you as an adoptive parent. And he did that in relationship to all of your children. You see, it's one thing to build a house around your kids. It's another thing to build a house around Jesus and to recognize that your kids are a part of that house. So maybe the application with Zachariah's song and Zachariah's story just to begin with is this idea that as a parent, grandparent, potential parent, whatever you may be, build your house around this incredible child born in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes who came to save his people from their sin. And so many other things about raising children come into clarity when that's the foundation of our family. You see how that works? You also see in Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 80, you also see that as a parent, that Zachariah is constantly casting in and calling out. My friend Walker Moore talks about how as a parent, we have the opportunity to cast in character so that in those moments of tension and moments of pressure, we can call out that character. We cast in character by telling stories of faith, by telling stories of success, by celebrating when things are done right, by correcting back to the heart when things are done wrong. We have this opportunity to cast in these stories of faith and faithfulness. And you see Zachariah do that in his song. He talks about the prophecies that that are leading up to the coming of Jesus and the promises that God made to Abraham and the promises that God made to the forefathers and David and the protection that God provided to the children of Israel leading up to this moment that Messiah would come. And he's writing this song as a way to teach his son the stories of our faith. He's casting into his son. And then as we remember who John the Baptist became, John the Baptist became the one to prepare the way. Well, where did he learn to do that? Well, he learned it at the feet of his father, the priest, and his mother. And the one who wrote the song that said, Messiah, the Messiah has come. So two-thirds of that song is about Messiah. And, the, and then the last part of it is about, is about John the Baptist himself. So let's take a look specifically at Luke chapter 1. Beginning in verse 68. So that little parenting moment is kind of an aside. That's an application that we can learn just by seeing the way Zechariah responded and the way he wrote that song. But it's not really the point of the passage. The point of the passage, the doctrine that we're attempting to defend is this idea that God is with us, God is for us, and God has entrusted us with this incredible, this remarkable purpose that's really eternal. So look at Luke chapter 1 verse 68 and we'll see the beginning of that. This is the beginning of Zechariah's song. He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. You see, there's the beginning of the idea. He has visited us. God is with us. 
he actually continues the idea later in the psalm when he's talking not about the Messiah to come, but about the Son who will preach about the Messiah that is to come. In verse 78, he says that word visit again, but I'm going to back up to verse 76 and read, uh, read into that because he's talking to John now. He's talking about his son John now. And you, child, you, John the Baptist, I wonder if he called him Little the Baptist when he was a kid. You think maybe that was his nickname? Hey, the Baptist, come here. I don't think that's probably what happened. Verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And here it comes, verse 78, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. The sunrise, what is the sunrise there? It's the glory of God in his son that is visiting us from on high. Remember that, 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 that uh, Mary and Joseph, they were, they were told, and in prophecy, they were told that, that the Messiah would be called Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. I think that's a remarkable truth about Christianity. I think it's a remarkable truth about who we are as believers in Christ and followers of him. That we don't serve a God that is far away and distant. We don't serve a God. We do serve a God that is set apart. He's set apart because of holiness. He's set apart by his righteousness. He's set apart because he is all-powerful and he is all-knowing and he is all-present. He's in all places at all times and he's moving and he's working because he's set apart because of those reasons. But this God who is so magnanimous, this God who is so magnificent, this God who is so great and in our condition this God who can look at us and shake his head and say, and you are so small. He's chosen to make himself known to you. When I look at verse 77 and 78, why did, why did he send you? To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Why? Because of the tender mercy of our God. Philippians chapter 1 talks about, um, well, let's just turn there. Philippians chapter 1. It's just such a short verse that says so much about the tender mercies of our God. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse Let's begin in verse uh, 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I told you in my heart, because I hold you in my heart. For you all are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Stop right there in verse 8. He, he yearns. This is Paul talking to the Philippians. I, I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And, and in Luke chapter 1, Jesus, God himself says about John, this is the one who will, who will tell the world about the tender mercies of our heavenly father. 
You see, it's like our heavenly father is looking. It's like Jesus and God. It's like they were in eternity past, standing in heaven, looking at our world and just seeing the brokenness and seeing the hurt caused by your sin and mine, recognizing the fact that because of my own sin, because of the things that I do wrong, because of the things that I choose, because I, I, just, I just prefer sin over righteousness. I just prefer sin over God because of every one of those wrong choices, because of every one of those wrong-headed, wrong direction, wrong ideas. Every one of those things has caused me to hurt myself and to hurt others. And your sin has done the same thing to you and to others. You've been hurt by someone else's sin, and you're in the process at times of hurting someone else with your sin. And God, in his tender mercies, it's like he and Jesus were together in heaven looking throughout all of history. And he saw you, and he saw me, and he said, son, we've got a choice. We can let them. We can just let them go in their sin. And here's what will happen. But in his tender mercy, in his tender mercy, he said, but I don't think we should do that. And here's what it's going to take. It's going to take your life standing right next to them. It's going to take you leaving this place of eternal perfection and eternal, and eternal glory and going to stand right by them, to look them in the eye, to hurt with them, to long for them with the affection of Jesus Christ, to stand right by their side. And then to take their place. For all the sin that they've committed, you won't. I know you, son. You won't do that. We are one and the same. We, we won't do that. But I need you to stand in their mess and in their misery. And not to just stand with them, but to stand in the place of them. And in that moment, I'm going to take all of their sin. I'll put it on you. And I'm going to count it as though you did every, every hurt that they've committed. I'm going to count it as though you did it. Every hurt they've experienced, I'm going to count it as though it's your fault. And the wrath of my anger is going to be poured out. And the punishment and the penalty of that sin will be meted out on you. This is my tender mercy on them. And in the affection of Jesus Christ, Jesus said, Yes. Yes, Father, I'll go. God with us. Not to just stand with them. Not to just stand with you. God is with you. Not to just be beside you. Not to just experience the hurt with you, but to take the hurt of your sin, the punishment and the penalty for you. You see, that's the nature of the promise. God has promised to redeem us. Isn't that what redemption is? means. It means we take something and we use that to pay for something else. Last night, Lana and I got to go on a date. We had a coupon for Outback Steakhouse. We exchanged a coupon for cash, right? I actually exchanged it for chicken on the barbie is what I exchanged it for. One of us got to eat for free and that was awesome. And it's because I had this coupon that I exchanged. Someone else paid the price for my chicken on the barbie. And what a small, insignificant illustration that is in light of the tender mercies of God that God has promised. When he says, I am with you, he has promised to redeem you. And that's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it tells us that he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin so that in him we might become 
the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange that in this redemption, in this promise of redemption, that God would remove our sin and place it inside his son, that God would take his righteousness, the righteousness of his son, and place it in us. And now we are forever forgiven and redeemed by the blood of this child who would come in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. God is with us. God is with you. That's the next idea, that not only is God with you, God is for you. Look at Luke chapter 1, verses 69 through 71. Verses 69 through 71. I'm going to start reading actually in verse 68, and you can catch up with me. Verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. In the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. God is with us. He's redeeming us. Those who who trust in him, who follow him, who've placed their faith in Christ, he's redeeming us, that great exchange. But not only is God with us, God is for us. He's promised to redeem us, but he's also promised to rescue us. God has promised to rescue us. That's what that horn of salvation is. It's the idea that Jesus, that God would fight for us through his son, that the battles that we face, that the temptations that come our way, that those who would stand against us with the intent to harm us, that God himself stands and fights on our behalf. And this is that moment as a parent writing the song that Zechariah is, he's casting into his son this incredible history, this amazing legacy of faith and faithfulness. He's reminding them of Abraham. He's reminding them of David. He's reminding them of all these promises of God and all these moments that God has come to rescue his people. He's reminding his son and the people of Israel. He's reminding you of that, that God has come to rescue us from our enemies. Who's your enemy? Who's your enemy? I mean, can you name them? Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's a place. Maybe it's a thing or an idea. Maybe it's a political idea. Maybe it's an economic idea. I know for me, and maybe it's more like, maybe your enemy is more like my enemy. I know that I am, I am my own worst enemy. I'm my own worst enemy. I can do bad all by myself. I don't need anybody's help. I don't sin simply because I'm tempted. I sin because I like it. If I'm just honest about it, I give in to temptation because I'd just rather do it my way than God's way. And so there's this enemy I see in me that is just my own appetite for that which is wrong and that which is God forsaken. There's just this enemy that's within me. And the Bible says that God has come to rescue us. He's come to rescue us. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. This is such an interesting verse of scripture. Ephesians chapter 5. Excuse me, Ephesians chapter 6, I keep saying, uh, is what I meant to say. Ephesians chapter 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So what should we do? Verse 13, it won't be on the screen. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Well, how can we do that? Well, I'm not able to fight 
and win the battles that I need to fight and win. I'm not smart enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not fast enough. I'm not righteous enough or holy enough. Yet God himself has said, I will go before you. I will fight for you. God has promised to redeem us. God has promised to rescue us. I don't know what battles you face. I don't know what temptations trip you up. I bet the temptations that trip you up are entirely different than the temptations that trip me up. Does that make me better than you? No, it makes my sin different than yours, right? But God has has said, I'm with you in this moment and I'm for you in the next. I'm fighting for you, attempting to provide not simply the way of salvation, but a way to take the next step of righteousness. Not because of anything that's good in you, but because of all the fight that I've done for you. Trust me and take your next step. Trust me and take your next step. It's always amazed me about believers, and I've said this many times from pulpits. I may have said it here, but it's always amazed me for believers, people who say, who claim to be followers of Christ, that we find it somehow relatively easy to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins so that we can spend eternity in heaven. We find it relatively easy to trust him for that, but to trust him enough well, with our children when they're failing. To trust him in this next step of obedience to do whatever it is he's asked us to do or to stop whatever it is he's asked us to stop doing. We can trust him for the eternal, but we can't trust him with this moment right now, with the next bill to come, with the next challenge to our faith, with the next conversation with our boss, with the next time our teacher's kind of a jerk or the grade isn't quite what I wanted it to be or I've had to wait longer than I wanted to wait for whomever I was waiting. And and I don't want to respond in sin, but man, the temptation is just there and I'm not naturally a patient person, so I'm just going to let them have it. I'm going to be aggressive. I'm going to be confrontational. I'm going to get up in their grill. I'm going to... I don't have to fight for myself in moments like that. Because God is not just with me, God is for me. And just like I can trust him with eternity, I can trust him with the next challenge to my faith. I can trust him with the next temptation that I face. And so can you. There's a story about a man and his best friend. They've been best friends all their life. And and. They came to this place where they were just fighting all the time. They just disagreed over something. And the man was a doctor. And, and in the middle of the fight, his friend totally betrays him. Completely and totally betrays him. Betrays his trust, betrays his friendship, betrays everything that he stands for. There's just this betrayal. Have you ever experienced a betrayal like that? Maybe it came in the context of your marriage or in the context of your job. Maybe it came in the context of a friendship. It's not really in us when we've been betrayed like that to want to reach out and show grace or tender mercy or compassion or loving kindness. It's not really in our nature to go fight for our friend who betrayed us, right? But in this story, the story is so different. Because the friend who committed the act of betrayal 
suddenly finds themselves in a circumstance that it's impossible for them to win on their own. There's just no way they can overcome on their own. So they go back to their friend who they betrayed, and they're having this conversation. It's a loud one. They're yelling at each other because they're upset with one another. And the, and the doctor, the man who was betrayed, says, you, he says all those things I just said. You betrayed me. You betrayed my trust. You betray, betrayed our friendship. You betrayed everything it is that I stand for. And in that moment, the friend who had committed the act of betrayal, he thought the conversation was over and that hope was lost and he begins to leave. And the doctor stops and says, wait, wait a minute, where are you going? And the friend goes, there's no way, there's no way you're going to help me. And he starts to walk in and goes, no, wait, do you think I, I care for you so little that betraying you would make a difference? See, that's the nature of of God's redemption and rescue of us. We have betrayed him a thousand different ways. And do you honestly believe, do you think that he cares for you so little that betraying him would stop him from being with you or for you? Because right here, Zechariah says, it doesn't. He's with you and he's for you. And this is just a father talking about the birth of someone else's son. And then we get to the passage where he's addressing his, his son now. Now he's talking to John the Baptist. Look at what he says, Luke, uh, Luke, Luke chapter 1, verses 76 uh, and following. And you, child, John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Not only is God with you and for you, not only has he rescued and redeemed you, God has entrusted you with an incredible purpose. Look at verse 77 for just a second. What did he do for John the Baptist? Here's your purpose, John the Baptist, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. John the Baptist was entrusted with an incredible purpose. Now, here's what's incredible about this. Zechariah had to have known the prophecies. Turn with me just really quickly to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. This is a passage of scripture that Isaiah or that Zechariah absolutely would have been familiar with. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all the flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Zechariah had to have known prophecies like that. Turn to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger. And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah, a priest of Almighty God, absolutely would have known these prophecies. And now here he is able to say, son, this is your purpose. You are the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make way, make straight, make the path plain. 
speak the knowledge of salvation to everyone because you're the one who gets to to declare Messiah has come. Now, your purpose is different than John the Baptist's, and so is mine. But it's related, right? You have this incredible purpose that God has made for you. He's placed you into into areas of influence, whether it's school or whether it's work or whether it's the home that you're in or the hobbies that you have. He's He's placed you in areas of influence. That no preacher, no priest, no prophet is ever going to be able to go. And he's, for those of you who are followers of Christ and, pre, and, 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 and followers and believers in him, he's placed in you as Holy Spirit. So you have this opportunity to do exactly what John the Baptist did wherever God has sent you. In your place of greatest influence, you have the opportunity to make the knowledge of salvation known to the people around you. You've been sent to make plain the truth that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, and that's why we can be forgiven. He's placed you in your workplace and with your family and with your friends and with your hobbies. He's placed you with influence among those people so that you could let them know that God is with them and God is for them and God has redeemed them. And God has redeemed them if they repent, if they follow, if they listen, if they just simply surrender to who he is, that God has rescued them. You are the carrier of that message You have an incredible purpose. I want to take just a moment, it's just a brief moment, to to talk to our students. Uh, Those of you who are back here, I'm going to walk down there. Is that okay just to talk for you guys for a second? I don't know if anybody ever talks to you like this or not, but um, you have so much incredible potential. The, The kind of potential that allows you to speak words of life that don't just influence this moment, but they influence all of eternity. And I'd be willing to bet that the folks you go to school with and the teachers that you have, I'd be willing to bet that they need to hear someone speak words of life. I think they need to hear someone who's honest. I'm not talking about sugarcoating anything. I'm not talking about not being honest. I'm saying they need to hear someone speak the truth to shine the light of truth in love right there where you are, and it's a place I'll never be able to go. It's a place Rob will never get. It's, it's friendships, it's relationships, it's influence that you have with your friends, with your family, with your school that, that we'll never have. And the same is true for each one of us. God's given you this incredible, this remarkable, this eternal. He picked, he picked you. Of all the ways he could have chosen to get his love and his salvation into your school, <laughs> he picked you. Of all the ways he could have chosen to get his message of grace, mercy, and forgiveness into your workplace, (laughs) he picked you. Am I good at it? I don't know. Do I know enough? I I don't know, but I know him. He's with me, and he's for me. He's redeemed me, and he's rescued me. You know what? I can carry that message too. And somehow, some way, Zechariah spoke that into his son, John the Baptist. And for all of, because of all of the grace of God and just the nature of the way God works, John the Baptist just somehow believed it. He just believed it. And so he just showed up and he started talking and he started telling. He started trusting that this is the message that I'm supposed to carry. And then John 10, this is the last verse we're going to look at. John 10, 41 it's this incredible story about the life of Jesus where Jesus is in this place and he's preached and he's taught and, and people are kind of rising up trying to grab him and do some stuff with him that Jesus doesn't want done and so Jesus kind of sneaks away. He sneaks away 
And in John 10, 41, it's the reaction of the crowd. And the crowd goes, okay, this is basically, he's saying some of the same stuff that John the Baptist said. John the Baptist, he never did any signs or wonders, but, but this Jesus, he's doing signs and wonders. And here's the thing about John the Baptist's testimony of the Messiah that I just think is brilliant. John 10, 41 the people, not John, the people who heard John preach, who listened to John's influence, who received his words, they looked and they went, wow, everything that John said about this man, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, everything that John said about him was true. I wonder if in your place of greatest influence, that that I wonder if that could be said about you. It's another remarkable piece of who John was. John 3:30. Jesus or John said of himself, "He, Jesus, must increase, I must decrease." God has entrusted you with an incredible, remarkable, eternal purpose, and you are the only one who can carry it. I'd like to invite us all to just take a moment to bow our heads and close our eyes and I'm just so grateful for what God's done in us and through us, through his son. And I can't help but think that there's people in this room who have never placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And, and everything I said about him is true today. That the sin that has broken you can be redeemed. That the temptation that fights against you, you can be rescued from. That the enemy that you face, he can overcome. Whether that's the enemy of yourself or the enemy of someone else, God can overcome. And so today, our invitation is very simply this. There's two pieces of it. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, would you surrender to him today? Would you place your faith in him and just trust him? Ask him to forgive your sin? As we sing in just a moment, there'll be people down front. You can come ask some questions. Hey, I'd, I'd like to know more about what it means to be a follower of Christ. If you need to do that when we sing, you can, you can come forward and talk to someone about that. For those of us, this is the second part of the invitation, but for those of us that, that are already believers, are you trusting him not just for eternity, but are you trusting him for today? Are you trusting him for the next decision, for the next moment? To overcome the next temptation, to make the next wise decision? If people were to talk about how you talk about Messiah, could they say of you, wherever you are, that everything you said about Jesus was true? Do they recognize in your own life that Jesus must increase while you must decrease? This 